Consider this quotation. The practice of the liturgy means that by the help of grace, we grow into living works of art before God. Today, I want to help you unpack this idea of becoming living works of art and how it relates to liturgy. I'm very honored and pleased to be asked by Professor Ann Greeley to be the first speaker in this series on art and worship. And I want to help you think about art and worship in a way you may have never thought about it before. Here are the three points I want to make. First, all of us are living works of art who are artistic in our very being. Point number two, we live improvisationally. Point number three, liturgy is not merely something we do on Sunday. All right, becoming living works of art then. One of St. Paul's best-known exhortations is that we present ourselves as a sacrifice to God. He writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's Romans 12.1. Yet what if we were to read this verse with a small change of wording, so it would read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrificial work of art. True, we normally don't think of ourselves as works of art, but why not? Are we not among the greatest works of art that God, the ultimate artist, has created? Theologians will certainly disagree as to the extent of God's agency in shaping us and thus our agency in this, but clearly we are very much involved in this process. That is, God has created each of us and now calls us to help shape and mold what he has created. Now this idea that we should view ourselves as works of art becomes even clearer when we consider what else Paul says, in this case Ephesians 2.10. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now the word translated here, workmanship, could easily and indeed quite literally be translated as work of art. For the Greek term is poema, which is a form of the term poesis, and poesis is used to denote the knowledge involved in making art. So Paul quite explicitly says that we are God's works of art. As God's artists, we have been, as he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we fulfill God's intentions for us when we walk in those good works. Now, that God has called us to be artists means a number of different things. One is that being an artist is not just for the few somewhat select group of artistically inclined special folk. Indeed, the task of the artist, the great ability to be artists, is something given to all of us. It is a vocation to which we are called. Now, I don't mean in any way to denigrate those who find themselves called to be artists in the much more specific sort of sense that we often use this word. Personally, I'm a jazz musician. I write on improvisation in the arts. And for instance, in Exodus 31, God specifically tells Moses that he has called Bezalel and Oholiab 
to make such things as the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. So there can be a very specific calling to be an artist in this much more specific sense. But in the way I'm using the term here, we're all called to be artists. Now there's a second aspect to this way of thinking. The word art has often, I think wrongly, been used as a synonym for high art. Opera, the symphony, museums, stuff like that. When we think of art in these terms, it's easy to think that art is some sort of thing that is merely just tacked onto life. On this way of thinking, art is something that only advanced cultures have. You know, in other words, if you, if you get far enough along, then you can come and develop, develop something like art. Problem with this view, it's simply not true. There are no cultures, no matter how old or primitive, that don't have some form of communal art. High art is an anomaly in our time compared to the millennia in which human beings have been making art. One only needs to think of those prehistoric cave paintings in Chavot, France, thought to be about 32,000 years old, that graphically demonstrate that we have long sought to express ourselves artistically. Or to use a very different art, virtually, uh, uh, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm missing a, a page, here we go. Um, there we go. <laughs> to use a different, a different sense, all cultures have dances or other kinds of rituals of movement that have religious and communal significance. Where you find a culture or civilization, you will always find art. One could put this even more strongly, and that is precisely because you have art, therefore you have culture and civilization. Art of various sorts is part and parcel of our everyday lives. We find it in symphony halls and billboards, uh, images on the internet and iTunes. Art flows from us precisely because we are works of art. In this sense, our souls and bodies are artworks. And that sense is much more important than the kind of art that is created musically or on a piece of canvas. But the third aspect to being living works of art. For philosophical reasons, it would take a long time to explain, so I won't bore you with that this morning. Beginning about a couple hundred years ago in Western culture, art came to be simply seen as about the emotions. You might think, well, what's wrong with that? To be sure, of course, art can provoke emotions. But the point of saying that art was simply about emotions was to say that art was not about truth. In other words, art's not something serious. It's frivolous. One problem with this view is, of course, it's simply wrong. A novel or film may well be a work of fiction, but they can often teach you plenty of things about real life. A painting can be revelatory. It can cause you to think differently, to see the world in different terms. But if that's the case, then art isn't simply frivolous. It can also be true, which means it can also be false. And that means that it won't do to say things like, well, you like what you like, and I like what I like. As long as art is frivolous, then we can take such an attitude. But if art can be true or false, then some art may be better precisely because it is more true.
Now, this way of thinking of yourself as an art object might be strange and novel to you, but the reality is it's a very old way of thinking, one you find in the Christian tradition and then even before the dawn of Christianity. The ancient Greeks saw the individual person as something like a work of art. They sought to bring the entire self, including the mind, into an ordered whole that reflected the order of the universe. Early Christians, such as Clement of Alexandria and the Cappadocian Fathers, were affected by this Greek way of thinking. They realized that to cultivate ourselves requires spiritual disciplines or exercises. The early church father, John Chrysostom, thinks of us growing in grace as analogous to the way that paintings or pieces of sculpture develop. He commends parents to think of rearing their children in terms of making artworks. Accordingly, children are called to continue that improvisatory work upon themselves in conjunction with others in the Christian community. Chrysostom also encourages those preparing for baptism to consider their souls to be paintings. Here's what he says. As therefore happens in the case of painters from life, so let it happen in your case. For they, arranging their boards and tracing white lines upon them and sketching the royal likeness in outline, before they apply the actual colors, rub out some lines and change some for others, rectifying mistakes and altering what is amiss. Consider that your soul is the portrait. The idea of seeing oneself as an artwork was common, whether one was a pagan, a Jew, or a Christian. The point of studying ancient texts was to become different persons. As one writer has put it, the classics, a literary tradition, existed for the sole purpose of making persons into classics. Exposure to the classics of Greek and Latin literature was intended to produce exemplary beings, their raw humanity molded and filed away by a double discipline, at once ethical and aesthetic. The goal was to find exemplary authors and then to emulate them. Artistically, our response to being called by God as artists is that we become improvisers with God and with each other. Because artistic improvisation is the continual development of what we have been given, there's a sense in which it constantly grows and moves beyond itself. Or to put this differently, we grow and constantly move beyond ourselves as constantly improvised works of art. God is also an improviser, for creation is precisely God setting into motion a reality of ceaseless alterations, as the theologian John Milbank has put it. Thus, the very being of life is improvisatory, by which I mean that it is a mixture of both structure and contingency, of regularity and unpredictability, of constraint and possibility. Further, if God is indeed still at work in the world, then God is likewise part of the improvisatory movement. Living in such a reality means that we take part in this improvisatory movement in all that we do. Since we are creatures embedded in the multiple and ever-changing historical and cultural milieus in which we find ourselves, our identities and very being arise from our relation to others and to the world that we inhabit and to God. It shouldn't be difficult to see that defining being artistic as improvising means that all of us are indebted 
to one another. There isn't anything like a lone artistic genius out there in some sort of garret, disconnected from the community. Instead, we're all improvisers together, quoting one another, sometimes saying the same thing in different ways, giving different perspectives on the same old things. There's, there's an ever-shifting balance between quotation and originality, between old and new, between you and me. Some of what I say is more mine, some is more yours, some is more tradition. Here I need to say something about the call and response structure, which you find in jazz and the blues. Given its centrality to life, it's not surprising that it's virtually everywhere in the Old and New Testaments. Consider how the word, world comes into being. God says, let there be light. And there was light. In Genesis 22, we get both the call and the classic form of the response. God calls out Abraham. And Abraham responds, here I am. Abraham here gives what turns out to be the standard biblical reply, saying in Hebrew, hineni. What does hineni mean, you ask? In effect, Abraham humbly says, here I am, your servant. I'm at your disposal. Tell me what you want to do. Mary says, here I am, when the angel announces to her that she will bear a child. This structure of call and response may be the most fundamental structure of our lives. We are called and we respond. I've already quoted from Paul, who begins by saying, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. That call and response can rightly be considered artistic in that we, in our very being, are God's works of art. We participate in God in developing ourselves, not to mention being creators of specific artworks. And this is due to our nature of being living works of art. To improvise in jazz is to respond to a call, to join in something that's already in progress. One becomes an improviser by becoming part of the structure and discourse of jazz. To become an improviser, you have to know a lot of stuff. You need to have an intimate knowledge of past improvisations and the possible conditions for those improvisations. To be able to improvise means one is steeped in a particular tradition, whether it's in the tradition of jazz or blues or Baroque music, and then knows how to respond to the call of other improvisers. Although we tend to think of improvisation in terms of spontaneity, that quality of improvisation, certainly present, is usually greatly exaggerated. It's also remarkably paradoxical. Not only are many improvisations often heavily scripted, but spontaneity is only possible when you're well prepared. It takes a great deal of work to be spontaneous. Now, talking about anything like a script raises the idea of liturgy. There are people who see themselves as attending liturgical church, churches, and these people often have different ideas of what liturgy should look like and sound like and, in many cases, even smell like. 
Even members of the same denomination can get very protective about their own ways of worshiping and quite critical about other ways. And members of a particular church often have very specific ideas of how the liturgy should go. My own denomination, the Scottish Episcopal Church, is composed of liturgies that can be roughly uh, classified as evangelical, broad church, and Anglo-Catholic or high church. People who consider their own churches to be non-liturgical are apt to associate liturgy with meaningless repetition, canned prayers, and showy formality. No doubt liturgy can become routine and meaningless, but simply using a prayer book hardly means that it must become so. And spontaneous prayers are often, in fact, usually not all that spontaneous. What do we mean by liturgy here? Liturgy, of course, is used almost exclusively today in connection with church services. But it was originally about how people lived. For instance, all of the uses of the term liturgia in the New Testament describe various virtuous actions of ministry and service. Literally, the word in Greek means the word work of the people though it's probably better rendered as something like public service or public work. The term was used to describe the servants of service of affluent members of society who performed liturgy in ancient Greece by contributing money for religious and sporting events. These people were called liturgists. If you were an athlete in ancient Greece, you would have really liked these people. Yet the term has come to denote, and here I quote from a, a famed person writing on liturgy, an action by which a group of people become something corporately which they had not been as a mere collection of individuals, a whole greater than its parts. These definitions make clear why in the Christian scriptures, variants of the term are used to describe such actions as ministering or ministry along with service and, and serving. For instance, Paul praises the Philippians for their ministry, liturgias, to him, Philippians uh, 2.30, and the Corinthians for their financial liturgias, 2 Corinthians 9.12. So it really is a matter of service, which if you've ever wondered why we call these things worship services, now you know the answer. Even though people talk about liturgical versus non-liturgical churches, there simply are no churches that are non-liturgical. Liturgy is about what believers do when they gather together on Sunday or at any gathering during the week. The main differences between so-called liturgical churches and so-called non-liturgical churches is that the liturgical churches have formal ways of ordering things. We might say that these churches are heavily scripted. Even though there is nothing like a schema that all churches follow, there's a general sort of pattern that many do follow whether that's laid out fully or more implicitly. Years ago, I heard a story about a youth pastor who was allowed to lead the service one Sunday evening. He gave an altar call, and a number of people came forward. And after the service, one of the elders came up to him, and he thought, oh, I'm going to be commended for doing a great job. Instead, the elder said, if you ever move the announcements again, you'll be history talk about a sense of liturgy. 
Historically, the church has understood its meetings on Sunday to be both a continuation and likewise a break with chronos, or common time. On the one hand, Sunday is the first day of the week. In effect, it frames the week, for the week is situated between one Sunday and the next. The liturgy on Sunday provides the context for the other days of the week, reminding us that the liturgy continues throughout the week in a different form. Yet Sunday has likewise been seen as a decisive break with common time or chronos, and thus known as the eighth day. One person writing on liturgy puts this quite memorably when he writes that on that the eighth day opens toward what cannot be reached simply by more days like those of the seven-day weeks we have known. It goes even deeper than this. The theologian von Allman describes Jesus' life as follows. A superficial reading of the New Testament is sufficient to teach us that the very life of Jesus of Nazareth is a life which is, in some sense, liturgical. He goes on to say that the life Jesus led was, quote, the life of worship. Now, in defining liturgy this way, we go beyond the narrow ideas that liturgy is merely something we do on Sunday morning, or that liturgy is only something done by so-called liturgical churches. That's not to say there isn't something quite special about the liturgy on Sunday. And there definitely are Christians who see themselves as more liturgical in this specialized sense. But each day must be lived in a liturgical way. All that we do is about worshiping God and living lives of worship. Now, Charles Price and Lewis Weil make a helpful distinction, at least that has been useful to me, between what they call intensive liturgy and extensive liturgy. Intensive liturgy is, to quote them, what happens when Christians assemble to worship God. Within intensive liturgy, we meet the living Christ by word and sacrament. Through intensive liturgy, we are taught, sustained, and fed. On the other hand, extensive liturgy is what happens when Christians leave the assembly to conduct their daily affairs. We are sustained and fed precisely to go out into the world. Of course, these two kinds of liturgy are wholly dependent upon one another. It's not as if you could have one without the other. As they say, to quote them again, Price and Weil, as our intensive liturgies drive us into the world to do our extensive liturgies, so our extensive liturgies bring us back week by week to the Christian assembly. There's a kind of interplay then between intensive and extensive liturgy, with each leading us back to the other. In defining liturgy in this way, we go beyond the narrow idea that liturgy is merely something we do on Sunday morning. Of course, these two senses of liturgy, of personal living and corporate worship, are hardly at odds with one another. Indeed, each sense is absolutely vital and reinforces the other. Intensive liturgy is what makes an extensive liturgy possible. Christians worship God as the ecclesia, the body of Christ, that literally comes together on Sunday morning. It is in these moments that we released from clock time and enter into festival time. 
That release is probably the most countercultural thing that we can do. For it is in this moment that we are affirming not the kingdoms of the world, but Jesus' kingdom. We also recognize that the entire way of ordering the world that we experience outside of the ecclesia is a counter-ordering. Yet then we go out into the world to live out the liturgy. Now all of this puts particular emphasis on our communal nature as persons. We minister to members of the body of Christ as a community. And here we have the intermingling senses of extensive and intensive liturgy, that of daily living and of corporate worship. The two are not in any way mutually exclusive. Instead, they feed upon one another. If we are to live as godly works of art, then corporate worship and the worship that we render to God by living our lives will mingle with each other so that it becomes impossible to separate them. It is highly appropriate then that someone has suggested that the church itself is like an artist colony. We are all artists together, striving to become works of art that would be pleasing to God and examples to the world. I hate to tell you this, but I'm done. that I want to do one last thing before I say goodbye. In my tradition, we like to end the service by saying, celebrant says, let us go forth in the name of Christ. Everyone says, thanks be to God. So let's try that. Let us go forth in the name of Christ. Thanks be to God. There we go. Thank you. <laughs>